DiscerningHearts.com in cooperation with the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Albert the Great presents St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings with Father Thomas McDermott. Father McDermott is a Dominican priest and Regent of Studies of the Province of St. Albert the Great. He is the author of Filled with All the Fullness of God, An Introduction to Catholic Spirituality, and Catherine of Siena, Spiritual Development in Her Life and Teaching. Proclaimed a Doctor of the Church in 1970, St. Catherine of Siena is considered one of the great mystical doctors of the Church. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has said that she still speaks to us today and impels us to walk courageously toward holiness to be ever more fully disciples of the Lord. St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings with Father Thomas McDermott. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be back. We've been talking about the life of St. Catherine of Siena and some of the events that occurred, and now we come to her time in dealing with the Avignon situation. Well, this is um, certainly in terms of the worldwide church, the universal church. Yes, it was very important. And it's the one thing that most people seem to know about St. Catherine of Siena, that she went to Avignon and, and had some role in convincing the Pope to return to Rome after an absence off and on of about 70 years. How did she get involved in this? I mean, we have to remember she was just this young girl. Yes. And, um, you know, just within a few short years, she went from being this seemingly shy recluse who was uh, spending a lot of time under the staircase in her family's house talking to the Lord, going to Mass, and coming back home again. She went from that environment to the papal court in Avignon. So it was a remarkable change just within a few short years. She went to Avignon not only to advise the Pope to go back to Rome, but I think primarily on a kind of diplomatic mission, as she, she would have seen it as such. Florence, which was a neighboring city to, is a neighboring city to uh, Siena and one of the historical rivals to Siena, had gotten itself in trouble with the, the Pope again and was under papal interdict. Uh, all the churches were closed, no sacraments could legally be uh, administered, and a group of Florentines talked to her and convinced her to go to the Pope and negotiate a kind of truce between Florence and the Holy See. And, and, and so she did that. But when she got to Avignon, the representatives of Florence there kind of disowned her, and it was a humiliation for her. They more or less claimed that she didn't represent Florence. But anyway, that apparently wasn't her only reason for going there. Uh, she also wanted to strongly encourage the Pope to return to Rome. Father, could you help us to understand in, in how the Pope would end up outside the walls of Rome? Well, in the long history of the papacy, um, the Pope has resided in, in many places besides Rome, such as Perugia, Orvieto, other places. But uh, it was primarily because of political reasons. A French Pope was elected. He didn't feel so safe in, in Rome. He was advised by his cardinals to move to Avignon while retaining, of course, the title of Bishop of Rome. He and his successors were there over a period of about 70 years. And if you go to Avignon in the south of France today, the papal palace is still there. You can uh, walk through it and see it. When she arrived there, 
It is kind of stunning that she would be able to have access to the pontiff of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. It's hard for us to imagine such a thing being possible today. But I think it shows that there was a certain freedom in the medieval church that strikes us as unusual today that would allow access by a woman right into the papal court to stand right before the pope. But she was a well-known personage even by this time. Pope had granted her a dispensation, as I mentioned in a previous show, to have priests with her and they could validly hear confession no matter what confessions and give absolution no matter what diocese they were in because Catherine attracted so many people around her at all times to listen to her. She had written the Pope a number of letters already, enjoining him to return to Rome. So she had a reputation of being possibly a holy person. There was some nervousness about Catherine, about women in general, doing the kinds of things she was doing, like Bridget of Sweden, too, was a contemporary. But she was allowed into the papal courts, I think, probably because the Pope wanted to know, you know, whether or not she really was a holy person, and, and he was open to receiving advice and, and direction and from such people. And so she got right into the papal court, and Raymond of Capua, her confessor and eventual biographer and, and very dear friend, was there. And he said the cardinals were, were not positively disposed to receiving her at all. And in those days, when you went into the presence of the Pope, you literally sat at his feet on, on steps that would lead up to the papal throne. And she did as most would do. She looked down. She didn't look at him. But at a certain point, it was her turn to speak. And uh, instead of remaining seated, she stood up and she looked the Pope right in the eye. And Raymond records the event in his biography of her. She said, the, all, the honor of Almighty God compels me to speak bluntly. The truth is that even before I left my native city, I was more conscious of the evil order of the sins committed in the Roman Curia than were the persons themselves who were committing them. Yes, and who continue to commit them daily. And mm -hmm. then Raymond says, the pontiff was silent, what well, you can imagine. Mm -hmm. For my own part, I was completely stunned. I was careful, however, to imprint on my memory that striking picture of her as radiating authority, she spoke to the Pope in such terms face to face. Hmm. And a few days after that, the Pope did decide to re return to Rome, which uh, incidentally he regretted once he got there making that decision because it wasn't very safe for him at all. To what extent was Catherine responsible for that decision? Well, I think almost all historians would say that she played a role in it. You know, there were probably other factors too. And she startled him a few times by discussing a dream that he had had, which he had not shared with anyone, but somehow she had, God had apparently granted her this knowledge of the dream. So there were some things that, that really, um, we would say, caught the Pope's attention and, uh, and led to his decision to return to Rome. The description you gave of that moment where she stood up and looked him directly in the eye in front of all these people sounds so much of what we might consider a prophet, how mm -hmm. they would behave. And it, could we say then that she had quite the prophetic voice? She did, definitely. And she, and she really did speak with authority. Uh, she regarded herself as, well, she was the recipient of so many divine revelations and um, visitations 
that she saw herself really as the mouthpiece of the Lord. She was, so she didn't mince words. She was a direct hitter in the kinds of things that she said. But she said it with a certain sweetness, which others like Savonarola, who was also interested in the reform of the church, didn't possess at all. So she, she made points with them because she was a critic, but she also loved the church. And that's why she was listened to. Is it about this time where she had the experience that would later lead to the writing of the dialogues, that time when she went to Mass with the four petitions? Yes, it was around that time, not in Avignon so much, but when she went to visit her friends in the Val d'Orcia, south of Siena, uh, she was spending some time there, and that's where she received her initial vision which she recounts in a letter to Raymond, a rather long letter, what it was she saw and heard. That's the first mention we have of Jesus Christ as a bridge stretching between heaven and earth with three stairs, three stages, going from earth back to heaven. Um, There's no record of that before that letter. And that letter really kind of sets out uh, not just the image of the bridge, but also her major teachings that she's going to incorporate in the dialogue which she sets about writing soon after she sends this letter to Raymond. And that was 1377. It wouldn't be too much time later that she would arrive in Rome. She would actually end up with many of her followers going to the Eternal City. Yes, uh uh-huh. And 1377, she was also in Avignon, and then she went to Val d'Orcia. She went back to Siena, went to Val d'Orcia, which was in the vicinity of uh, Siena. And then she spent the last year and a half of her life in Rome. She was there at the request of the Pope. The Pope had summoned various holy people, mystics, to come to Rome and to pray for him and pray for the church and to advise him. We only know of one person who answered that appeal of the Pope, and that was Catherine of Siena. Her contemporary, her Augustinian hermit friend, who lived outside of Siena in um, a little area called Lecceto, which is still there, and the Augustinians are still there. She used to go out to Lecceto to um, talk with William of Fleet. He was an English Augustinian hermit. He was a theologian. They would go to talk theology, and she would pick his brain, and then she would more or less kind of preach to him. He also received the summons from the Pope to go to Rome as one of these holy people to pray for him and advise him. But he didn't want to leave the solitude of his forest as a hermit. Catherine gets after him in one of her letters. It wasn't easy being a friend of St. Catherine of Siena because uh, she really held people to high standards. William of Fleet never went. Catherine went. She was there a year and a half, staying in the home of a benefactress. Um, the home is still standing. It's a building not far from Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, where she was buried, where her tomb is. And that's where she died, was in this home after a year and a half in Rome. This time in Rome was a time of great suffering for her, both physically and spiritually. Yeah, she had pretty much worn herself out physically. You know, she had this um, eating problem. I don't know if we would call it a disorder, where she kind of became allergic to food. It might have been as a result of her extreme fasts that she uh, imposed on herself. 
we do have a letter that she wrote to a priest in in Florence saying something like, I understand you had this problem that, that I have presently where you couldn't eat food, it would come back up. Please tell me how you dealt with it because I'd like to return to the table and eat too. But she never got over it. She was never really able to keep food down. She would go to the table and make a good show of it but didn't succeed, and this, of course, contributed to her her death at the age of 33. We'll return in just a moment to St. Catherine of Siena, her life and teachings, with Father Thomas McDermott. This is Chris McGregor. The work of discerning hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Please consider making a tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Catherine of Siena O Supreme Physician, O unspeakable love of my soul, I have recourse to Thee. O infinite and eternal Trinity, I, though unworthy, ardently sigh for Thee. I turn to Thee in the mystical body of Thy holy Church, so that Thou mayest wash away with Thy grace all stains of my soul. I beseech Thee, through the merits of St. Peter, to whom Thou hast committed the care of Thy bark, to delay no longer to help Thy spouse who hopes in the fire of thy charity and in the abyss of thy admirable wisdom. Despise not the desires of thy servants, but do thou thyself guide thy holy bark. O thou, the author of peace, draw unto thyself all the faithful, dispel the darkness of the storm, so that the dawn of thy light may shine upon the head of thy church and pour down upon him zeal for the salvation of souls. O eternal and merciful Father, Thou hast given us the means of restraining the arms of Thy justice in the humble prayer and ardent desires of Thy devoted servants, whom Thou hast promised to hear when they ask Thee to have mercy upon the world. O powerful and eternal God, I thank Thee for the peace which thou wilt grant to thy spouse. I will enter into thy gardens, and there I will remain until I see the fulfillment of thy promises, which never fail. Wash away our sins, O Lord, and purify our souls in the blood which thy only begotten Son shed for us. So with that joyful countenance and pure hearts, we may return love for love and dine to ourselves, live for him alone. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. 
If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings, with Father Thomas McDermott. This 33-year-old woman who is very frail in her health, and as there are accounts of her literally almost crawling to St. Peter's to be able Mm -hmm. just to pray, Mm-hmm. For the church, I mean that. I mean the fact that we would still be talking about that effort to enter into prayer and the, what it took to get there all these centuries later, it speaks of the power of that particular moment and that action, doesn't it? I think so, and and I I can just imagine her going to St. Peter's. By then, she was a well-known person. I'm I'm sure she attracted attention because she always traveled with her disciples, so they were probably huddled around her. Uh, One of the sources said that she went to Rome with, um, I think it was 30 of them, and there were more men than women. Mm -hmm. Uh, These were her um, disciples from Siena. And uh, so they probably surrounded her. I think they were probably with her at all times as she dragged herself to St. Peter's every day, and she would stay until Vespers, and then she would drag herself back home again. Considerable distance, I'd say of, um, oh, probably a mile and a half. Might even be a little bit longer. And incidentally, this was the old St. Peter's, not the one that we know now. Mm-hmm. And we're told that on the, the front of the old St. Peter's, there was a mosaic of the bark of Peter, of Peter in this little boat being tossed up and down in the waves. And that would become uh, incorporated into one of her visions that she had towards the very end of her life of uh, her offering herself again to the Lord for reform of the church and for the salvation of souls. And then she saw the bark of Peter, this little boat, come down and, and crush her. And that was symbolic of the Lord accepting you know, her offer of herself. And, and there's a, a modern image of St. Catherine of Siena kind of gingerly carrying the church on her shoulder like a, a waitress might carry a tray in a restaurant. That's not accurate because the, the boat came down and it crushed her, signifying that her, the offer, her self-offering, was accepted by the Lord. And then she died shortly after that. A pilgrim to Rome today would have the opportunity. It's hard to miss the just a, a beautiful statue of St. Catherine as she is, I mean, it's such a poignant image of her as she's looking towards St. Peter's. It's at, at an important cross point, uh, all the roads there that would ultimately lead to the main drag that goes up to up to the Vatican. Right, and right. Isn't it poignant? Oh, it's very poignant. And it uh, was done in 1970. It's on the property of the grounds of Castle San Angelo, this round ancient structure on the Tiber River, which is at the end of the Via Conciliazione, the the main street that goes right into the uh, St. Peter's Square. 
So it's on the grounds of that, and it, um, it shows St. Catherine in kind of in haste going to the Vatican. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of sculpture. Upon her death, as with most people who are so publicly known for such holiness, such sanctity, there must have been quite an emotional movement, not only for the people of Rome, but also of Siena. Yes, and uh, the house that she died in, as I mentioned earlier, is still standing. The room in which she died has been converted into a, a chapel. It doesn't look anything like a bedroom anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, off the lobby of a small theater called Teatro Rossi. And um, it's, it's just a, a few feet from the, um, that famous tailoring shop for the popes. It's an, the chapel, the former bedroom, now a chapel, is an open every day of the year. It's open certainly on the day of her death, April the 29th, her feast day, and I think at other times too. And some people have said if you go into the lobby of the theater and ask for a key, they'll, they'll let you open the chapel there and see where she died. And it's not far from Santa Maria Maggiore where her tomb is under the high altar. There are two different accounts of her death. One was Raymond of Capua's account, but he wasn't there, but he as usual, cites his sources of people who were there. And then there's another eyewitness account um, by, I think it was Domenici, one of her disciples. But she goes around and pretty much assigns a life task for all of her disciples. It wasn't so much a prophecy as it was, you know, you're going to become a Carthusian, you're going to become a Dominican cloistered nun, so on and so forth. And for the most part, they all did these things as she instructed. And some of them, like Stefano Maconi, became the superior general of the Carthusians. The others did made significant contributions to the church, too. I, if I'm not mistaken, there was only one major portrait that was ever done of her in her life by one of her followers. It is in the church in Siena. Well, we have two true likenesses of St. Catherine of Siena. And both of them are, on, are in Siena in the Church of San Domenico. The one is a fresco that was originally painted, they think, on one of the columns or the pillars in the back of the church where the, uh, where the Third Order would meet. Mm-hmm. It's on a, kind of a raised um, platform back there. And it's been transferred now um, to behind an altar in that same area. It's... Uh, it was done during her lifetime by one of her disciples, Valley, who was also involved in politics in Siena. It shows uh, Catherine kind of austere looking, and she's extended her hand. A younger person is kissing her fingers. And um, this goes back to, uh, as her notoriety increased, the sources tell us, many, many people would come, thousands of people would come, and they would want to kiss her hands. And in fact, one of her disciples said once, you know, aren't you afraid of vainglory? Said to St. Catherine, she said, oh, no, uh, that would never happen, you know, because I'm just a creature. And uh, how could that ever, you know, go to my head? And so we have that, that image of Vali. And then the other one is a bust, a small bust of St. Catherine of Siena, which um, kind of presents the same facial image as what we see on the fresco. Those are the only two true likenesses we have of St. Catherine of Siena. Both of them are in the Church of San Domenico. It's wonderful to be able to look upon the, the face of the saint, as clear as representation as they were able to replicate back in the 1300s. 
there was also the remarkable in that her body for a, a tremendous amount of time was incorrupt. Yes, when they when they opened her tomb, oh, I think it was maybe 10 years or so, to transfer it from one place in the Church of the Minerva in Rome to under the high altar, it was incorrupt. It's not incorrupt anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done images of the contents of, a, of an iron box that contains her uh, most of her bones, and they're scattered inside like anyone would expect, you know, after mm-hmm. all these centuries. The medievals had a very earthy faith and promoted the, the cult of relics. Before she was proclaimed a saint, Raymond of Capua, seeing the way things were going, got permission from the Pope to sever her head from the corpse and to bring the head to Siena so that the people of Siena would have something of her, literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a great procession from Rome to Siena, and when they got closer to Siena, Catherine's mother came out. She was now a mantellata herself, dressed in their habit. And they solemnly brought Catherine's head, which was in a reliquary. People could see it into Siena, and it's ensconced in the Church of San Domenico today. You can still see it. In closing this particular section of our discussions about the life and teaching of St. Catherine of Siena, this, of course, we've just reflected on her life and significant events. She is a member of that great cloud of witnesses. And in in the communion of saints is such a gift to us as Catholics that we do believe that in some way the the Holy Spirit allows us to be able to to encounter them, to walk with them. Mm -hmm. And I would just ask if, if you're comfortable with sharing this, Father McDermott, it, could you tell us about the Catherine you've come to know? Well, I didn't really know Catherine well until I had been ordained almost 20 years. Um, and all of that time I had spent as a missionary in West Africa and Nigeria. Then I got a sabbatical to go to Rome. And the very first course that I took at the Angelicum was on St. Catherine of Siena. The teacher was a well-known expert on St. Catherine, Sister Mary O'Driscoll. As I mentioned in the first segment, uh, it wasn't love at first sight. It took me a while to get into uh, her life and teaching. But when I got into it, uh, well, I kind of feared when I went on for my doctorate that there was going to reach a point where I would find something that she said or did that was embarrassing, or I would reach a point where I just had heard enough and she was repeating herself and I was was getting bored. And the uh, it never happened. It never happened. Right from beginning to end, I just became so fascinated with everything she did and everything she said. And uh, one of the reasons was, as I, I just said, is because it has a lot of practical applications. And I think she also helped me as a priest who was uh, trained in the post-Vatican II era to synthesize a lot of my, my theological thought in a way. Uh, because she does come out of a certain tradition. She is the the daughter of a tradition of the church. In fact, one of my future projects is writing a a, a catechism based on the teachings of St. Catherine of of Siena, because she covers every topic of the faith. Mm. I think, you know, whether you're a priest or sister or layperson, she really uh, can be a great assist in assimilating, comprehending the truths of our faith. She was in my life, and I 
I felt also, as I said, that when I read her letters, that um, I really knew her as a person and that she was present to me. I still feel that way, she, that she's a part of my life. I do uh, think of her throughout the course of the day, and, and she's a, a big part of my life. And I, I would find it hard to imagine someone who studied her even half as much as I did, who wouldn't have had that same engagement with St. Catherine. Thank you so much for this overview of her life, and I'm looking forward to our continuing conversations about her actual teachings. Thank you, Chris. I am too. You've been listening to St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings, with Father Thomas McDermott. To hear and or to download this recording, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Albert the Great. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings with Father Thomas McDermott.